Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody. And once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. And as always, we've got a great show for you this evening. Uh, we're going to start things out here in just a moment or two uh, with another great discussion on Coach's Corner. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined uh, also once again by a very special guest. He was on a little earlier this year, Terry Kohler, uh, the chairman and director of innovation for uh, Edison Golf. He's going to be joining me. And uh, we're going to pick up our conversation from uh, a few months ago and uh, talk a little bit about the design and uh, sort of the thought process, if you will, in behind uh, their uh, ever-popular wedges. So we're going to talk to Terry a little bit later on in the show. But uh, let me remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday evening on blogtalkradio.com as our main uh, site. And uh, we're here from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 for those of you on the East Coast. And uh, always excited to be here live on the program. And uh, for those of you that uh, maybe don't get the chance to always tune in, uh, you can just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive and you scroll down to the on-demand section and you'll find all of the previously aired shows, including tonight's will be there after the broadcast. You can listen to the recorded version there and pick up any that you may have missed. So, uh, again, thanks for those of you that are tuning in live tonight. And uh, I-, I thought based on tonight's discussion, it couldn't have happened at a better time that I would have my very special uh, guest and good friend, uh, on the Coach's Corner panel because he specializes in the short game particularly. Obviously, he does all aspects of the game, but has really dialed in, as it were, uh, on the short game. So I'm going to introduce my good friend, Clint Wright. He's a 30-plus-year member of the PGA and a partner at TGM Golf. And they're, of course, they're a big proponent, as I've mentioned, of the R3 approach. Consider him to be among the best covering the short game and uh, is always, of course, a favorite guest here on Coach's Corner panel. And he's become a good friend of mine. Uh, over the last several years. So please welcome my very special guest on Coach's Corner, Clint Wright. Clint, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Ted. Glad to be here. I appreciate all the nice compliments. Well, I, hey, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was thinking back earlier, you know, when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was preparing for the show, and I remember we, we used to uh, joke around in the beginning how you were uh, kind of at the back of the bus um, right. and, uh, you've slowly, you've slowly creeped up and, and now you're sitting right behind the driver's seat, um, uh, uh, here on, on coach's corner. So <laughs> just, right. yeah, just I've, I've been time, working right? real hard, Ted. I've been working real hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate yeah. it. Um, uh, so I welcome. thought, I, I, yeah, I thought, as I said, uh, in the intro, you know, we have, um, you know, a lot of different things we've talked about on the game and, and uh, I know that the short game is an area that you really uh, have been very passionate about dialing in. 
And uh, so I've got a few questions that were sent to me that people have, and some of them are, are more general and some of them get a little bit more in depth, but I just want to, you know, okay. just sort of do a little bit of an introduction here. Um, and I think really the short game is, is one of, if not, uh, can be the most fun area of the game to practice. And, you know, why is this? Well, it changes to the short game have a very quick impact on the rest of your game. Obviously it's nice to hit some long tee shots, but there's a lot of components to the short game. And if you learn to master them a little bit better, you're going to really save some strokes and help to lower your handicap. And that's what we're hoping to do a little bit tonight. So I, I, I want to sure. start off with a, with a might seem like a very obvious uh, question, Clint. Um, but what really covers, just explain what is in the short game, what is included or what do we consider part of the short game, uh, just sort of the various components. Well, a lot of people have different definitions to it. Um, you know, I've kind of morphed into or developed beyond what I would call the short game is more talking about your third shot. Uh, everybody up here gets tired of me talking about you got to get to your third shot. you got to get to the third shot. Because if you get your third shot on the green in two-play, you can shoot 90. I mean, so if you're trying to make some progress, that's the way to look at it. So I've always considered kind of old school, the short game is anything inside 100 yards to the hole. You know, wedges, chipping, pitching, bunker play. Uh, obviously, putting would be considered part of the short game, although many of us would talk about it as being a separate game altogether. Um, right. So in, in that general thing, kind of the – um, where uh, right now I've been working on some ideas about how you close the gap. You know, you got a 400-yard hole. You, you got your gap's 400 yards long, so we want them, the next that's just to reduce the gap. So when we get up to where we think we can reduce the gap close to the hole, then we might want to think that as being part of our short game or scoring zone, red zone, scoring game, whatever you want to call it. But what it really comes down to is, is you're in an area that you can close the gap to the hole as close as you can and, and hopefully utilize a one-putt or at least a two-putt to, to keep your score down. So broad definition of short game, but on the other hand, it's the scoring shot. Inside 100 yards, I guess, would be anything you hit from that range or closer, we can include in that, that scoring game or short game area. Yeah, and you, you touched on, on really the, the main points, obviously putting, chipping, and, and pitching. Um, right. with that inside that hundred yards and, and obviously bunker play and, and things mm -hmm. like that, but, uh, right. sort of fall into that, um, for the most part, certainly are greenside bunkers. Let me clarify, cause obviously fairway bunkers sure. are, are, oh, yeah. sometimes are going to be a lot further, but, but I, I think people right. understand the reason why, the reason why I, I wanted you to sort of clarify that is because a lot of people spend, I think, unfortunately more time overall ball striking and not really dialing into some of those areas. So, uh, this might sound like a very generic question that I'm about to ask you, but I'm going to frame it in such a way that I think you'll be able to cover a lot of ground with this. So uh, I've had a number of people over the years ask this question, and obviously it depends on the individual. Um, but a lot of the similar question is, why is my short game so bad? And, you know, obviously there could be a thousand reasons, but typically based on your experience, when you've watched and worked with a number of people over the years that you have, what are some of the symptoms of a bad short game that you come across very frequently and typically what is it they're, they're doing or not doing that's hampering or not allowing them to improve that area of their game? 
Well, you can call it a symptom. I, I think you might want to consider, I like to call it a behavior. What's your behavior uh, when you go to your practice area, whether it be the, you know, the driving range, if you want to call it that, or the short game area? A lot of golf courses today have been trying to, to develop a short game area where a person could go chip and putt and pitch and bunkers and stuff, but many golf courses don't. So if you look at what I think is the biggest problem, the behavior of most players is to want to go and hit downrange shots. They want to go to the range and they want to hit those home runs, you know. So the behavior mm -hmm. that you see with their, quote, practice time is that they don't spend any time proportionately working on shots from 100 yards in. So I see it as behavior uh, that when the player goes out there, how am I going to behave in this practice area? Am I just going to hit drivers and seven irons or three woods? Am I going to go over here and spend a little time chipping and putting and pitching? So that's the behavior and how they utilize their time. Um, beyond that, what I see, let's even take the person and say, okay, I'm not going to hit range balls. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch. And what you see a lot is that they don't work on distance control very well. Now, right. first of all, we're going to assume that they're making contact, all right? If they're not making contact with the ball, then what you most of the time see is a, a loss of the angle at impact. They flip the club up and trying to lift it up in the air. So that that's generally the thing you see the most fault in is trying to flip it up in the air. So if you can get that corrected in the, the, the left hand or the lead hand uh, is in front of the ball at impact, then it comes down, you've got solid and maybe consistent contact. So it would behoove you to work on develop distance control. You know, you get in 30, you know, 25, 30 yards off the green, it's hard to hit it really that much offline. You're just not right. making that big a swing. All right, so distance control is is paramount that you can say, okay, I need to land this ball 30, 30 yards and let it roll up to the green. Well, you kind of need to know what you need to do to hit it 30 yards. It it really comes back down to one of the things we've talked about many times as far as speed control on the greens, get some data on benchmark strokes that day. You know, figure out what mm -hmm. you've got to do to make a ball go that far. And most people today are carrying at least three wedges, you know, maybe maybe two, but most time it's a pitching wedge, a gap wedge, and a sand wedge. And you can develop distance control with each one of those to get a, a pretty wide variety of shot patterns that you can call on depending on the situations you're faced with. So behavioral-wise, they don't practice a lot in that area. But when they do, I don't see them working different type of shots. They just go out and hit pit shots. And the one that gets right. me is that, you know, you're going, and I trick people into to making a point here. So let's just hit it to that flag there on the on the practice grain. And they'll hit balls to that flag. And I said, you know, you are never going to have that shot to that flag. The right. question you should have asked me is how far that flag is. How far is the flag away? And then you can figure out what you got to do. So I try to get people to focus their attention on making certain length swings with their wedges. You know, we've also, you know, swing by the clock. I like knee high, waist high, shoulder high. You know, to find out how the ball reacts and responds when you do those certain things. The most wasted behavior is standing there and hitting at a flag on the practice range and not knowing anything right. about how far that flag is away.
you know. So it comes right. down to proper behavior and proper purpose when they go there. So that's the biggest. Those are the biggest things. That was a little long-winded, but that's what I see. No, that's and that's a, a great answer, Clint. Thank you for that. You know, just to sort of jump on that just a little bit more. You know, what I often will do because again, you're you're right. You'll see people hitting to you know they'll see a short flag and let's say for argument's sake it may be uh, you know a hundred or, or slightly over a hundred yards away. And, um, you know, they're just hitting to the flag, shot after shot. And, you know, or they'll point to another flag and maybe try to do that as well. And what I'll often do is if you're going to park yourself in front of that 100-yard flag, here's a good way to work on that is, first off, again, determine how far that flag is. So let's say it's 100 to keep it simple. So, you know, you're going to hit a few shots. Obviously, you want to say, okay, what have I got to do to get it to that 100 yards? And then without having to move anywhere figure out roughly halfway between where you are and where that flag is. So now you're looking at a 50-yard shot and then break it down maybe two or three times to a 30 you know, or 75-yard, whatever it is. Technology now with uh, range finders and that, you can pretty much zero in exactly. And, yeah, it's not going to be hitting to a green, but at least you're getting that feel. So if you're going to sit yourself, uh, figuratively speaking, in front of a flag, Break that flag down in, in three or four different options. So whatever the long distance is, is 100, break it down to 75. What shot do I need to hit at 75 and 50 and so on so that you have an understanding. Obviously, you should move to, to a short game area, but as you said, some of them don't, so you have to be creative. So I think that's another way to, if you're going to do something like that, think put some thought into it and sort of create some, some scenarios and some options for you to focus on. Because even though it's not going to a green at that 50-yard shot, you know you how far you're hitting it So and what type of shot is needed to take. So that's just some extra things that I like to try to get to. And if I see somebody practicing on the range, even if I'm not working with them, I'll even suggest that to them and get them to, to break that habit of what you talked about, where they're just hitting to that flag all the time and thinking, okay, I'm working on my short game, when they're really not working on a lot of uh, aspects, especially with the wedge play. Um, but I just wanted to add that in there as just an option for right. people I've found to be very successful. Uh, so this brings me to sort of the second part of that same question is um, how much or often should I practice my short game? If I truly want to get better, and again, I, I, there's a lot of variables here, but let's take a sort of a generic uh, approach to this. If somebody's playing once a week, maybe twice a week, and wants to seriously improve their game, they're making a commitment, what's a good way to make good use of that time? We understand the types of shots they should be working on, but how much time should they actually be dedicating to see some noticeable results? Well, uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty much a, an open-ended uh, answer. I mean, <clears throat> if <laughs> depends on how much time they have. I mean, you know, if they're playing twice a week, I mean that that's probably what average of what a player may do or once a week. Um, you know, I look at it if I have time to practice. Okay. Um, and I'm gonna go and dedicate an hour of practice or an hour and a half, however much time I have. I'm gonna try to to remember like last week I played twice. I drove it okay. You know, hit a few fairways, may have gotten rough a few times, but hit okay. You know, I hit my irons pretty good. I hit 10, 11 greens. That, that's okay. Um, and try to, again, what we've always talked about, identify where you were struggling and spend the majority of my lesson or my uh, 
practice time that practice day, time. working on where I may have struggled last week when I was playing. And so, you know, if if you go out there and play today and, and you don't hit but one fairway, you might want to spend more of your time working on your driving that particular session. Uh, so I like the idea of having some sense of how you played the time before and where were the, the holes in your proficiency. And if my holes in my proficiency, well, I, I really didn't putt very well, uh, then I'm going to spend that practice session working on my putting, um, or right. at least the majority of it. Okay, And then if I putted okay, but I had a little bunker trouble, you know, I'm not going to hit it in that many bunkers, so I'm not going to spend a dramatic amount of time. I'm going to try to no. kind of get a feel for it, see what I want to do, but then go on and practice some other stuff. But when I'm maybe hitting 10 or 11 greens around, I'm not going to spend or 12. I'm not going to spend a lot of time hitting full shots. I want to go to, well, I, I didn't get it up and down but once. Well, why didn't you get it up and down? Well, my chipping, my proximity was 15 feet. Well, I need to work on my chipping a little bit. So I spend the majority of my time there. So the answer to the question is, is I'm going to spend the majority of my time where I was having difficulty. Yeah, you know, if right. it's and, and, good, you know, go ahead. That's right. Yeah, and what I was just gonna what I was just gonna say is is really the number one thing is to identify where the problems are, where the difficulties, where you're struggling first, and then, you know, then appropriately spend the amount of time, whatever it ends up being, whether it's an hour, hour and a half, what have you, uh, focusing on those key areas. What I what I typically like to do, and I'll, I'll give two quick scenarios. If somebody's playing once a week and if somebody's playing twice a week, if somebody's playing once a week, I prefer them because they're going to warm up. Most people, unless they're you know not thinking straight, are going to warm up a little bit before they play that day. So get out there, warm up, find out what game you've got that day. What what how you know you're slicing the ball, are you hooking the ball? What is it you're doing? Um, are you a little bit inconsistent? Go out and play that round. Take note. And be conscious of, as you said, what's going on in that another day based on what they've discovered in that round and work on those areas so that when they go out next week and they warm up, they've already had some, some thought process going into They know some of the weak areas that they've had. If they're playing two rounds a day, or uh, sorry, two rounds a week, um, depending on how they're situated, but usually if it's early in the week and then maybe one on the weekend, I like to get them to do a practice in between those, again, for the same reason. Warm up on the first uh, day that you're playing. Get out there and see how you are, um, what problems you're having on that first day. Then go out and practice those and then see how that practice, see how that has worked on the second round that you're playing later in the week. And then sort of culminate everything that's gone over that week and then you carry it on to the next week. But I like to do that in between as opposed to just practicing ahead of time on every scenario and then just going out and playing a couple of rounds. So I like to sort of allow them an opportunity to play, see where the problems are, get out there, work on that. When they're playing again, see how it helps or not helps, and then reassess for the following week and do the same thing. So sort of repeat and rinse, if you will. And I think it gives you an idea of how the, the steps that you're taking, the things that you're working on, how it's sitting around. And that's why I like to get people to do it after they've played, not immediately after, but after they've played, so they have a better understanding of what the problem areas are and then they can focus on those when they do their, their practice session. So that's just my thought. Uh, you may or may not agree with that, but that's what I have found to be 
um, most successful for students that I've worked with. And if you want to add to that or you want to uh, dis- no, well, disagree. Well, I, I don't um, have a whole lot to yeah. No, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I think that's an approach that's data-driven, uh, and then you just have to decide what what you're going to do with the data. I mean, that's that's you know, I, I tend to to like to think, well, today I'm just going to you know take what I got and do the best I can with it, and then make some kind of right. analysis to map out a plan to to get better at it if I really want to. You know, there's no question right. about that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now this question here. Um, again, there, there's a, a number of things that you can do, and the reason why I pulled this question out of some of the uh, questions that I received is, you know, we're, we're, you and I and, and many others that may be tuning into the show are very fortunate. We're down here in the south. Uh, we can play a lot of golf even through the winter months. We have the climate. Um, it's, it's conducive uh, weather most of the time, certainly a few, you know, bad days here and there, but uh, we can pretty much play a lot of golf. We're getting a lot of people here in the upcoming months. We've still got another maybe couple of months left um, up in the northeast and even northwest where they're going to start getting into some really cold climates and they're not going to be able to get out and play. So one of the options is if you don't have access to some sort of an indoor facility to, to work on your game, you could do at home. Have you got some tips that maybe you could give for golfers um, that maybe are, are looking at, you know, I hate to use the word hibernating for the winter months, but don't have access maybe yeah, to no. some of the, the, the same golf that we have, um, that they could maybe things that they could be doing at home to keep themselves, you know, in, in pretty good shape, tuned up in that, so that when they get back out in the course, when things are, you know, warming up again, they're prepared and they're not sort of sitting lump like a lame duck for three or four months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that there's some obvious answers to that. One is that you could – you know, entertain a fitness program, and there's the it's the the not the newest craze. We've all known that for years, but you know, a lot of clubs today uh, have fitness programs either through the the local YMCA or a gym somewhere that they're affiliated with. You might want to check with their local pro or club manager or whatever level of their clubs at. And if they don't have an affiliated program, they may should reach out and see if they can't develop one for their members or the people that play there. Mm-hmm. If not, just reach out to a gym or personal trainer that would give you, you know, a routine. I'm not the person that, you know, to, to tell you to do these many setups and stretches and whatever, but there are um, plenty of people uh, that's available today online. I mean, there's so much information on how to do things correctly to stay as, you know, as, as – fit as you can through the winter and keep your body stretched, you know, and 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 uh, maintain what you have. But one of the things I think if you, you look at, we've always talked about it for years, is that if I'm going to do something in my house to hopefully get me to next season with either better or maybe a different attitude about it, I'm going to work on my putting. Because if I can improve my putting stroke, and my ability to hit it online, then I'm going to be able to stand out there 15, 20 yards off the green and not think I've got to hit it dead to the hole to get it up and down. So it frees me up a little bit in chipping. Now, most of us don't have the ability to chip in our house, but putting, I can do that. And so if I improve my ability to roll the ball online and, you know, improve my stroke, if you'd like to say that, it frees up my chipping to not have to be so good. 
which in reality makes it better because I'm not I'm not stressing about it and getting tight and trying to jam it up there. So I can get better simply because the next shot, the putting stroke, I have more feel for, if you want to say more confidence in it, more belief that I can make the putt. And one of the things I have found that, that mimics a lot of green speeds is, I, I know you, you know this stuff, I don't know what they call it, but it's this little material that you put under a, a uh, throw rug that mm-hmm. holds it in place. That yeah. really has the proper speed. You know, I got one in my office. And you can go to Walmart, any place, you know, that has stuff like that and buy you a piece, cut you a piece out maybe four or five feet long, three feet on it. And what I did on mine was I drew a four and a quarter inch hole, or a, you know, on one end, and I drew a line on it down the middle, okay, to where I had a, a line that I could put it on, and get visually better at that. And that's something you can do all the time, not just in the winter. Right. And and I found it to be, be quite productive um, with people to say, okay, I see the line now better. I know where I'm looking for the line, and I can keep the ball on it. So that just gives me a more relaxed feel when I'm trying to make that four-footer or three-footer um, that now I feel good about that I don't have to chip it two feet to get it up and down. And fortunately, I think many times you find we don't think you have to chip it two feet. You do because you're more mm-hmm. relaxed taking the ball in there. So fitness program is obvious in the question, but I think one is not, is improve your putting. See the line better. Try to get your stroke down to where you can put it on the line you picked and and then uh, continue to develop that. And, you know, 10 minutes every now and then, it's amazing how much more productive you can be uh, with your intermediate putting for sure uh, if you do that through the winter. I highly encourage people yeah, to do that. Yeah, some great points. And just to add to that, I think, you know, if you're in a situation, you know, some people may have access, as you said, to um, a facility where they can get in and practice indoors. Um, you know, up in, in uh, Buffalo, as an example, they have a, a dome where you can go in, uh, you know, at all times of the season and uh, and work on that. But a lot of folks may not have access. So I'm always a firm believer, work on what you can. So, you know, as you pointed out, there's a lot of options for putting to work on. Obviously, stay, you know, fit, get into, um, you know, a program, you know, talk to your pro. uh, And if they're not, uh, as an example, TPI certified, which is in fitness, um, they certainly, most pros now know somebody who is certified uh, or is experienced in in golf fitness because it is different than just going lifting weights at a regular gym. But, you know, do whatever you can. And if there are options, the other thing that I like people to do is, is to work on your swing. You don't even have to have a club for this. You know, uh, again, you can very uh, cheaply go to your local hardware store and uh, get a, you know, a full-length uh, section of mirror. You don't even have to have it framed just as long as it's, you know, it's not sharp. There's some, uh, no edging on it. Um, you know, lean that if you've got a basement uh, or you've got a room that you can go in just enough so that you can see yourself and work on um, different things. What I like to do, too, as I've mentioned to people, is to take some scotch tape and run it right down the center of that mirror and then take your setup and see as you're turning into your backswing. Again, you don't need a club. You can just put your hands uh, across your shoulders, uh, across your chest, rather, 
and make a, a turn into your backswing, and, and that gives you an indication of when you're whether you're swaying off the ball or swaying, in, you know, into your backswing, and then you know swing, uh, you know, make your movement through as though you were doing a follow through, and see, you know, watch yourself and see how things are doing. But you know, there's so many things that you can work on. There's no excuse because the worst thing that you can do, Clint, I think you would agree with this, is just to sit and do nothing, um, you know, for three or four months. And, and not do some of the things that you've mentioned and what I've just pointed out here and then get out there and expect right. to pick up where you left off or have to start the process oh. again. So, yeah. you know, do whatever you can, whatever you, yeah, whatever you're able to do, uh, certainly do that. This is a question too, uh, this next one that, um, and, and, and again, I'm going to preface this a little bit. Um, you know, I remember watching a, uh, on the champions tour, um, on the golf channel, um, I can't remember what the segment was, but, uh, you know, they would obviously have a lot of the pros coming on and, um, and doing their, uh, uh, you know, their, their tips and things. And Lee Trevino talked about the grip and he said, you know, when he, when he pitches the ball or when he's, you know, uh, even chipping, he changes his grip a little bit from what he would with a normal swing. So it, it, what is the best grip that you have found to use? Uh, you know, again, we're talking about the short game, not talking about long pitch shots. Um, you know, I'm talking maybe chip or, or other areas um, uh, or short pitches, or does it really matter? Can we just take one of the standard three where it's an interlock, you know, overlapping or a 10-finger grip? Or as Lee talked about, he liked to strengthen that left hand a little bit um, more and felt that it, it gave him uh, sort of a more solid feel um, where his wrists were taken out of those shots. Do you have, a, a, you know, something that you recommend or does it really matter? What are your thoughts? Well, it's obvious it matters because people have different styles uh, of that. Um, Personally, I just use my normal normal grip. Uh, I use overlap um, grip, the you know Varden style grip. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, I think that differently than change. Well, I played with a a good friend of mine today. Was in the tournament. He 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 left hand low chips. It just feels better doing that, okay? But standard, well, you know, left hand high, but he chips left hand low, much like Fitzpatrick does, um, and chips right. very well, okay? And so that works just fine. Um, success is success. Depending on how you get there is up to you, right. kind of, sort of, you know. Um, I also feel that when if I'm chipping correctly, I want to take my left hand and, like Trevino says, maybe make it a little stronger. I like to feel like that I've got a little bit more outward bow in my left hand. I want to make sure it doesn't break down. Okay? So I take my regular grip, and then I'm, I'm going to get the, my left wrist to move towards the target. If you, if you can envision that, I'm going to bow my left wrist back. So that's going to make my wrist move towards the target, which is going to give me more of a pronounced hands in front of the club face. Right. Okay? Um, because if I make a mistake in chipping, is that breaking down? So I want to bow it out to give myself a little bit of a leg up. And so that, I think, is maybe what Trevino was doing as well, getting a little stronger mm-hmm. bend or more pronounced left hand in front of the club head. Okay, um, that also gives me a little bit more of a downward blow on the chip. Uh, I see a lot of good 
pitchers and chipper of the ball that have that little bit more bowed left hand. Um, they set up a little open, get the left hip in the impact position on the chips where there's not a lot of hip movement, and they bow that left hand out and just in a, and uh, it just helps them get the downward blow. Club head then's going to stay behind the left hand until impact, which just gives you a much crisper and, and more direct down and running type shot. Uh, so the grip does matter. I mean, I think the hand position uh, is more important as far as what where it's at in relationship to the club face. But whatever grip they like to go to interlock or overlap or ten finger, I see some people that use their putter grip. You know, we all have different styles of holding a putter, I guess. You see some of that. So really, to me, it comes down to what you feel comfortable with and that you can keep the, the hands in front of the club head through impact. And whatever that is, is is fine with me. I do think there may be a little bit of experimenting the discovery that you could take place to, to get to that. But... Um, but it, it, I guess the the answer is it matters, but it it's up to you. It's up to what you feel most comfortable with. Yeah, and obviously, every, every everybody's is an individual and and has uh, right. you know uh, their own style and that. I think really it just as going back to the example that Trevino was using, I think one of the reasons why he uh, sort of was recommending that is a lot of people get very handsy. Um, you know, whether it's a, a pitch shot or whether it's chipping. And what he was trying to, to get across was that making some of the, the adjustments that he did with his grip. And, again, whether it's interlocking that was not really the, so much the point as, uh, you know, modifying it to, uh, you know, a slightly stronger grip in, with the left hand and so forth was really to take the wrist hinge um, out of it a little bit more so that you weren't bumping into the back of, uh, you know, the ground behind the ball. He was trying to sort of solidify that, uh, that grip a little bit more so that you were making better and more crisp contact. And that's just something that he's, you know, obviously worked, but it may not work for everybody. Um, but I think that's what he was trying to, the point he was trying to get across was sort for sort of be less handsy uh, in, in some of these shorter finesse shots. And uh, obviously it worked very well for him because he had a good short game. So, uh, but again, it works differently for everybody. Uh, th the next question I have is, is uh, again, um, it, it certainly is going to derive individual taste. Um, there's sort of two rules of, of, of uh, thought here um, when it comes to uh, the short game. Um, do you change the club and not the swing? So, for instance, um, each scenario is different. Some people have a favorite club. If they're you know, uh, chipping around the green, they may pick out, um, you know, a certain club, maybe it's a seven iron, eight iron, nine or whatever it may be, maybe even a hybrid, depending on close. Um, is it okay and is it beneficial for people to experiment a little bit and, and have more options as opposed to just sticking with one club um, and maybe reducing uh, some of the options? Uh, in other words, have plenty of tools as an option in the tool bag. What are your thoughts here? Well, it's it's obvious. I mean, the more the more different shots that I can produce gives me obviously more tools to use, regardless of what the shot scenario is. So, I've always had people to think of it this way: is that most courses today, if you're within a putter length or maybe a putter two lengths uh, off the edge of the green, you can probably use your putter. You don't need to put it in the air. 
and the putter is designed to make it roll. So you just hit the back of the ball and let it roll through whatever it is. Then if you get beyond the two putter lengths and uh, maybe another club, three putters, you might be able to hit the little eight iron or nine iron bump and run. Now, today the loft angles are so much different on people's clubs. We used to chip with a seven iron. Now that's a pitching wedge, you know, as far as loft angles. Uh, so you have to do a little experimenting on which one of those loft angles give you the shot. And then I've always liked to have, on, unless it's just some special scenario, the club outside of that four off the, the green, I would always try to get to where you got one club you go to, like a 54, 55-degree wedge, sand wedge, whatever you want to call it, and figure out how to use that club well because you're going to hit those shots a lot. You know, if you're you're hitting just a few greens around, you're going to hit that, 15, 20-yard shot off the green a lot of times. So you want to have a club that you feel real comfortable with, uh, putting the ball up in the air, let the club work for you, control some distances with it. But then you always need to have that really high-lofted shot for a special scenario. What I see a lot of people doing is using a 60-degree wedge where they absolutely don't shouldn't be using it. It's a low-percentage shot, but they see it on television think, well, you got to put the ball way up in the air, let it stop and spin, all this fancy stuff. And it creates a lot of problems for them because they don't practice that shot enough to really be efficient at it. So what I would like to see them do, put it if you can, bump and run, 7-iron, 8-iron, whichever one you like, and then find that real solid 54-55 wedge that is kind of their go-to, but then have a 60-degree that you can – you know, do the old flop shot with if you need to. But but I've always been in the school of pick one and get good with it. Um, and I think that's that 54-55 wedge, the old standard sand wedge that we all grew up with. And you'd be surprised that you can you can hit a lot of different shots with that, that loft of club uh, and get real comfortable with it, get familiar with how the club reacts for you. And uh, get good with that one club uh, from that range, I think, is the best approach. Well said. Um, you know, again, it, it it depends on the individual. Uh, obviously, some people um, have different levels of comfort. Um, they might choose a favorite club and kind of stick with that. It may not always serve them well in every situation. Um, but as you said, that, that sort of 54, 55-degree wedge uh, is, is good to have as a standby. Um, but then you also have to consider some other options, as you've suggested. So I think it's really be afraid. Again, this is something that you do in that, you know, hour, hour and a half, you know, practice session if you're willing to commit and work on some of those things and test them out. You know, test those out and see what works best for you and make a note of that. And, you know, if you find one that, that you know, let's say out of 10 shots, uh, 50% of the time you're you're seeing some positive result, that may be one that you want to, you know, work on a little bit more and see if you can get that up to 70% of the time. If one doesn't matter what you're doing out of 10 shots, um, you're, you know, barely making two or three of them making anything happen and you've tried that several times and still the same result, um, that may not be a route you want to try that right now. That may be something down the road. But so you want to certainly stick with something you're comfortable with, but don't be afraid to experiment. Um, and uh, again, you know, as Nicholas always talked about in his golf, uh, in his um uh, video golf my way um you know he he would change the club depending on the shot he had 
he wouldn't change his swing. So he used the same swing. Obviously, it's a little bit different in the short game, but essentially he used the same swing uh, throughout his career, but he would just change the, pl- uh, the club excuse me, to uh, adapt to whatever his need was in that particular shot. So um, I, I think it's good that what you, uh, what you mentioned, and I think you raised some valid points. Um, one of the other things um, that we come across is, um, is tension. Uh, especially in the shoulders. This can be sometimes uh, a real killer, I think you would agree, for the short game. People get uh, very tense, you know, in their arms, and obviously it starts with the bigger muscles and that. Um, and a lot of times what I find happens is they tense up over the shot, and then as they actually hitting the shot, um, sometimes the muscles will, believe it or not, can relax, and then you're out of, out of your posture. So what are your thoughts here? How do we, you know, uh, one thing I sometimes recommend is really to um, let your shoulders really relax and almost feel like they're heavy right before you swing. So that way everything sort of, because if your shoulders are relaxed, your arms are going to relax and so on down the food chain. What are your thoughts here? Well, Ted, this is, now, now you're getting into psychology now. I mean, um, that we, we all have major conversations about. But one of the, the things that, that I try to talk to my students and people just in general, they, most of the guys around here, before I get done, they think their head will be hurting, you know, because we talk about so much of this stuff. And it really, they need to be conscious of how they're breathing, bring their heart rate down, um, so, yes, we want to relax. That's obvious. We don't want to have tension in our shoulders and our hands or body anywhere. So we have to, you know, that's kind of a behavior again. We get tight over them. Uh, it triggers a response of that nature. So what we have to do is figure out, how am I going to manage it? What am I going to do about it? I'm not going to ignore it. Uh, it's going to happen. Um, we're aware of it. So what are we going to do to bring that tension down? And just telling a person, oh, well, you just need to relax, that's, that's probably not, they don't know, well, tell me how I'm supposed to relax. Well, I've right. found success with it over the years is take a few deep breaths. Get your heart rate down. You can breathe and feel it just kind of, you know, kind of as you breathe out, let your body relax. Sink into your feet and your legs. Like you say, make your shoulders heavy. You know, but you do that through proper breathing because one of the things that happens, if you stand over the ball or anything and you're holding your breath and not breathing well, your body's going to go into panic mode. You know, your brain's going to say, whatever you're doing, let's get it over with because I need to breathe again. You know, (laughs) get done with it. Mm -hmm. And we tense up, we get quick and fast. So I would encourage people to to, um, look into, uh, there's plenty of information out there. I mean, we've got... Every one of us has got 100% of the world's knowledge in our pocket, so it's out there. You just go out and, you know, search it, you know, breathing. I don't want to really say get into yoga or whatever, but it is a lot of that idea of how do we relax our body, not just to say, hey, relax. Well, how am I supposed to do that? And most of the programs I have seen start with breathing exercises. You know, mm-hmm. to use your breath to bring the tension level down. And, you know, just an old country boy like I am, you know, it worked. I mean, so if you, you <laughs> want to make those shoulders heavy, do it with your breathing. And it's not just that you're breathing. We're all going to breathe. 
It's whether you're paying attention to it. Right. Bring it down. Pay attention to your breath coming in and out to relax yourself. And, and it works wonderfully. Uh, and how that, that really helps a person to calm down uh, before they, they hit a shot that they see is being a stressful shot. They're never going to not believe it's not stressful. Okay? It's important to them. So they're trying their best, and sometimes I was like, well, no, we all try too hard, and that's where the tension comes in. Relax, bring the, bring the pressure down in order to give yourself the best chance of hitting the shot that you're wanting to hit. Um, and I like, your, I like your analogy of making your shoulders feel heavy because that means I'm really letting everything kind of drop down into my hips and my legs, yep. uh, which is a really good relaxed position to be in, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, my father, when I was a youngster, would, would talk to me about things like that. Um, and, you know, I can remember going to the, to the breathing. You know, uh, I had a bad habit, which a lot of people do. And you're exactly right. Breathing is a huge thing. And I'm not just talking about regular breathing, you know, like you're, uh, you would do day in, day out. You know, really taking some good deep breaths in that, but making sure that you're, you're breathing correctly. Because what a lot of people do, and I'm sure you've seen this many times, and we're all guilty of it at some point, um, is they'll actually hold their breath. You know, they'll get into, you know, they're breathing and they're getting, and then right when they're ready to, to sort of execute that golf shot, they sort of take a breath in and they're holding it. And all of a sudden, tension starts to creep in. So you have to actually breathe. And I was always taught, um, you know, as you are coming through the shot, as you're coming in your downswing through the shot, you're exhaling. You're actually increasing the energy. You're expelling energy at the same time. If you're breathing in as you go back and breathing out as you come down, and if you do it effectively and and correctly, um, and it's a lot easier than you think, you're going to find that you're going to execute much better shots because your body is going to be in rhythm. The tension is going to ease out of that, that uh, you know, those trouble areas. Um, but you're exactly right. Breathing is something. But, you know, that was something my dad used to get on me when I was a kid. And he'd say, hey, Ted, Ted, why are you holding your breath? Because I really didn't understand, um, you know, proper breathing techniques. And, and you mentioned some other things. Yoga may not be for everybody, but those are some effective things as well. Uh, but the main underlying thing is you want to find – whatever works for you to release the tension um, in, in your body. And that doesn't mean you just melt into the ground like, like soup, but you can't be tense standing over. And, yes, it, you know, that's where, you know, the pros have learned over time through a lot of different techniques and obviously a lot of help is they've learned to be able to relax themselves under pressure. Um, you know, the average Joe out there doesn't feel the pressure of a, of a, a tour pro, uh, but they do feel pressure when they're playing with their, with their foursome or if they're playing in, uh, you know, a corporate event or, you know, like you did earlier today uh, in, in a, a charity event, um, you know, they're nervous. So it's understandable. So having some uh, techniques, if you will, and as you said, with the phones today and, and other you know pros out there that they can reach out to, there's a million opportunities out there to find some effective ways mm-hmm. and find what works for you. But uh, some great points there again, Clint. Um, yeah, I think yeah, let me add, let me add this for let me yeah, let ahead. me add this before we get away from it. If people want to see it in action, if they'll go back and pull up some videos of Phil Mickelson at Kiowa when he won the PGA there a couple of years ago, yeah, they will yep. show the picture of him standing behind each shot with his eyes closed, breathing until he felt his body relax. Nicholas did the same thing. 
That's why he stood yep. over the ball and stood over the ball and stood over it until he felt his body calm down, and then he made his stroke. So we don't need to do what Nicholas did, stand over it all day, but there are some very good techniques, and they're not all for everybody, but there are some good techniques in learning how to, to do that. But that was a prime example when Mickelson, they showed it, never commented on it. But you could see him just stand there until he felt his heart rate drop and his body relax, and then he went up and executed. And, and you're absolutely correct. We all have problems with holding our breath because we're, we're you yeah. know, so very, very important starting point for most of us to, to calm ourselves down, without a doubt. Yep. And, you know, you can do that before the round, during the round, and after the round. And if you practice those things, a, a great way, just one last thing, and then we'll move on. A, a great way to really implement that, you, first off, you have to learn how to breathe properly. Uh, because believe it or not, a lot of people breathe up in their up in their upper chest, and that's not it. You have to take deep breaths, which go much lower um, into your into your lungs and that. And 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 really, um, some people it's almost like people who walk on their toes. Um, they're not utilizing the full foot. So you know you have to learn how to. Uh, and there's a lot of great places, as you said, you can research it um, to develop proper breathing techniques. And you can do this before you. Get on the, you know, out in the practice tee, uh, work on that, and start to regulate your breath. And you'll find that your practice sessions will become much more enjoyable, uh, less stressful, and you'll see better results because your body is going to get into a relaxed state. Because I see people all the time up there, and I can tell by watching them what they're doing. Some people just get up there, and they're, you know, it's not just a matter of they're having good technique in hitting golf balls. They actually know how to regulate their body um, to put themselves in a relaxed state. Uh, not just mentally, but physically as well. And that takes practice. So it's just like your game. You've got to practice that as well, and you'll find you're going to be a much more effective player all the way around. Um, another one, too, is you've got to consider your options. Um, maybe you take uh, a, a less risky path. Um, you know, you kind of gave a similar uh, scenario earlier, you know, where maybe you hit your driver and, and whatever uh, club it might be a six iron, and you came up a few yards short of the green. So now you're, you know, you're in a situation where you're um, – not even in between clubs, but you've got a very tricky uh, shot. Maybe you've got a front cut pin um, and not a lot of room to work with. Um, you have to really think about your strategy here. So, um, again, it's going to vary depending on the handicap, but um, what are some options here? Um, what would you recommend, say, for a high handicap uh, person that's in that situation um, that needs to maybe choose a less risky path? Give us with this example if you want or if you have another one you prefer. Um, what would be your recommendation for somebody that's in that situation? What would they should they do to to get them the best opportunity to maybe save par or um, you know prevent from getting a bogey or double bogey? Right. Okay. So what the scenario you're discussing is I've hit a good drive and I'm in between clubs, can't maybe get it onto the green or uh, things. Well, they've, they've come up they've correct? come up short. Yeah. They, they yeah they've hit okay. a drive okay. and you know they've checked the six iron or seven whatever it is and they've fallen short. So right. now they're in a position where they're off the green and they've got this little shot sure. maybe they need to, to get. Yeah. I, I mean, that comes down to how much, to, to me, all right, how many different shots am I capable of hitting reasonably successful? Okay. You know, and I, I came up knowing that, hey, give your putter a chance. You know, so I'm going to try to get the ball 
into a position that gives me the easiest putt. Okay, now so that generally means, hey, I'm going to try to be, you know, on the on the the uh, fall line side of the hole, which obviously is below the hole, and I want to try to figure out if I can get this chip or pitch, depending on what the difficulty is. I mean, if I'm short-sided over a bunker, I'm just trying to get it on the green where I can maybe make a putt and, or two putt at the worst and go on about the next hole. But if I've got a shot where I'm pretty confident, I'm looking at where I want to putt from. You know, I see a lot of people make a mistake. You know, they got a relatively simple pitch, you know, a little 55 or 60 degree if they got to, or a little chip and run. And they chip the ball, literally trying to make it instead of thinking about where do I want to putt from? You know, where do I want to putt this ball from? And I want to try to get it in that area. I don't have to be dead specific, but I want to get it down there where I think I got an easier putt. There was a great example of this a couple of years ago. I think it was may have been in the U.S. Open with Jordan Spieth and his caddy. Jordan had this real difficult pitch from the long grass on the short side, and they went down there and tried to figure out, okay, where do I want to putt from? Where do I want to try to get this ball to give me the easiest putt I can get? Because I'm going to have to make a putt here. I'm going to have to make a 10, 15-footer. So where's the easiest 10-footer for me to try to get this ball to? And they played to that point, and he made the putt, saved his par. So when you get into these circumstances where you, you, you know, you've maybe not hit too bad a shot, you're up around the green, you're maybe inside the cylinder uh, of the bunkers, try to get an idea of where do I want to putt from. You know, if you got time, go up and see, you know, quick look. Where do I want to putt from? Where's the easiest putt? And try to get the ball in that general area because I see a lot of times people <laughs> – you know, chip the ball, and they, and they got, you know, greens are kind of quick, and they chip the ball past the hole up the hill, and now they got a harder shot now than they had when they were chipping. They got a little downhill 10, 12-footer that, that, you know, that, that they made three-putt. I want to get – if mm-hmm. I just don't want to make a double making, you know, three-putting from 15 feet when I could have maybe yeah. pitched it over there and got a 10-footer up the hill, uh, then I'm not going to be chipping this ball into a harder shot than the one I'm just about ready to hit. So it just takes a little bit of strategy, but a little little practice, but primarily trying not to get the ball in a position that I have a trickier shot than the one I'm going to hit. And what that means to me is where's my easiest putt and try to get it in that general area of the green in relationship to the slope of the green. Well said. And I think just in conclusion, if I was to sum up tonight's uh, discussion, I think there are a couple of key takeaway points that I think people should keep in mind. Number one, all through the season, but particularly in the off season for some of you, is you want to continue to keep yourself in shape and you want to practice what you can. If it's only putting, that's great. You can always be working on your grip and things and stance and posture, all those things too. But you want to be working on something through the off season that is going to benefit you, particularly in your short game. If you're if you've got the facility or the ability to work on some of the chipping and pitching that we talked about, whether uh, you have an inside facility that allows you to do that, great. If you don't, then work on some of the things that Clint had mentioned as well. The other thing is when you're playing, always assess your game. Don't make changes mid round, but make mental notes or even jot it down on your scorecard somewhere. Um, of some of the, the struggles that you've had through that round 
and then focus on that. Focus your practice sessions on that. Make good use of your time. Uh, don't just get out there and hit and rake balls, but actually focus on uh, some of the key uh, areas uh, that you're struggling with. Um, develop a strategy along the way. Find out what works best for you. And always consider your options, and that comes parcel with assessing your game. Um, and, you know, choose the right club for you, uh, but don't be afraid to consider other options as well and work on those. And then whether it's through breathing techniques or some other, uh, you know, thing, um, work on, uh, you know, releasing that tension in your body so that when you're up over the ball, no matter what situation, whether you're by yourself or in a group uh, or playing in some uh, event somewhere, um, work on, you know, really releasing that tension. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of specific techniques that may help uh, you develop a, a, a more uh, strict short game. And the best way to do that is to see your local uh, teacher professional and get some help in, in those areas. But I think that covers pretty much everything. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that's a, a great uh, Cliff Notes uh, version of what we talked about today. It's all right there in a summary. Um, but I think I could add to it, yeah, get some good instructions if you need it, but practice. Spend time yes. with it. Golf is a user sport, and you just can't think your way to a better short game. Uh, you can think your way into a better, you know, uh, program, but you just have to get out and use it if you expect to be successful with it. And that, to me, is the biggest problem I see with people they just think they can think their way to a better stroke. And it, it, it's just like, and I'll just say it real quickly, it's kind of like, well, I can read a book about how Sam Sneed played golf, but I certainly can't go out right without doing it and play the way Sam Sneed did. You know, you have to right. practice. You have to use it and learn through practical experiences with it, and you'd be amazed how much more proficient and, and, and good you'll be at some of those shots if you just pay attention to them. And do a little work. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Uh, practice, but also mindful practice, making sure that you're practicing the right things because you can get out there and practice the wrong things and just make matters worse. So that's why it's good to, to get in touch with your local professional if you need that help. But Clint, as always, uh, I enjoy our conversations. You always add some great insight, and hopefully, uh, you know, those tuning into the program uh, will have some takeaways uh, from our discussions. But as so. always, um, give you an opportunity. Yeah, give you an opportunity to let the folks know if they want to reach out to you, the best way they can do that. And sure. if there's anything that you'd like to plug, uh, by all means, go ahead. Uh, nothing to plug tonight, Ted. We're, I, it's been a great show. I enjoy doing it. And uh, if people want to reach out to me, it's clintgoff001 at yahoo.com, and, and I respond to the emails quite a bit. And uh, like I said, I've always enjoyed doing the show. Look forward to doing many more in the, in the future. And, and uh, I hope that... Uh, people do take to heart some of the things we talk about and because we I, I know we sincerely hope that people get better at our game because if they do guess what they, they'll have more fun they play more golf and and our sport becomes healthy and that's what we look for exactly well said all right my friend have a great weekend uh thank you as always for joining me here on uh, coach's corner uh segment of the program and i look forward to you coming back uh next month and join me once again. So have a great weekend. All right. Thanks as always. Take, right. You're welcome. Bye -bye. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye. All right. That was Clint Wright joining me on the Coach's Corner panel segment of the show. Uh, we'll be right back after this quick break with my very special guest tonight, uh, Terry Kohler. We'll be right back.
The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. All right. Welcome back to the show. And thank you, uh, as always, for joining me here uh, live on Golf Talk Live. Um, just a quick program note, uh, or a mention rather, uh, as I've uh, talked about here over the last several weeks uh, during the show, uh, the end of um, October, the 27th through to the 29th, uh, Golf Tips will be hosting a golf school at Macklemore uh, up in the, uh, atop the uh, Lookout Mountain in Georgia. Uh, we're closed off now. We've already booked that solid. So really excited about uh, working with some of the, the folks up there and some of the members of the top 25 instructors are going to be joining me uh, as well. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, we'll be shooting some video while we're there and uh, hopefully get some instructional video in there, uh, video, excuse me, in there. So we'll be posting that uh, on the website and, and elsewhere. So uh, keep an eye out. But I'm really excited about doing that. Uh, Macklemore is a great resort. And if you want to learn more about Macklemore, go to themacklemore.com. Uh, dot uh, com is their website and uh, they've got a great golf course there and some great amenities as well and a new hotel that's going to be opening up i believe uh either later this fall or very early spring um uh, presented by hilton so really excited to see how that uh, goes and and uh so check it out at the macklemore.com but uh, golf tips will be there at the end of october from the 27th to the 29th so uh, stay tuned i'll have some great uh, videos and images coming back from from that golf school um, all right, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, I'm once again joined by a very, very special guest, uh, Terry Kohler. He's the chairman and director of innovation at Edison Golf. We had a great discussion last time, and I know we're going to have a great one uh, this time. And uh, so I'm going to bring him out and uh, not waste any time uh, me talking, but uh, let's see what Terry has to say and, and uh, some great information that I'm sure he'll share with the audience tonight. So please welcome my very special guest, uh, Terry Kohler. Terry, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Well, I appreciate it. We had a lot to talk about the last time, and uh, I know that uh, there were a lot of things that you really wanted to uh, hopefully get into, and I said, well, the only way we're going to do that is if you come back. So uh, here you are, and, and uh, we're going to get into that. So I, I want to ask you just a, a few general questions first, uh, just to sort of get things uh, started and, and warmed up, if you will. And then we'll get into some specific things I know that you'd probably like to, to discuss. So in, in your experience, what do you consider to be some good characteristics of a good wedge? What, what are some of the things that when you're looking for a wedge, um, if you were to go out and buy, forgetting who you are and what you do, if you're looking for a good wedge, what are some of the characteristics you're looking for and why? Well, <clears throat> I'm a big believer that, you know, you can, I think you can try out drivers and even irons maybe in the, in the indoor hitting bay with launch monitors giving you your numbers. But I've always believed that you have to go take a wedge out to the golf course that you play and the kind of turf conditions you run into, the kind of shots you face every round from your full swing wedge shots to your mid-range 
shots, for your little delicate shots around the greens, you have to really put a wedge through the paces the way you play golf and where you play golf. And and that's a challenge for picking out wedges because a lot of times they're not going to let you take the wedge to the golf course, but that's the only way to try. Um, I've always been kind of a cynic, if you will, about bounce fitting because we run into all kinds of different lives in, in a round of golf. We run into all kinds of different swing paths. I mean, sometimes we nip the ball clean. Sometimes we take a bigger divot. And so I think, you know, what I'm looking for in a wedge, the first thing I'm going to look for is, does this wedge have a shaft that blends to my irons? Um, so, you know, almost all the wedges on the retail displays have a medium to heavyweight steel shaft in them, stiff flex. And so many golfers, uh, particularly seniors, are playing lighter graphite, you know, softer steel. The first thing that wedge has to do to perform for you is it has to have a shaft that's that what I call blends seamlessly to your irons. It doesn't have to be the exact same brand, um, but it needs to be comparable in weight and flex to what's in your irons because that's what you're used to. But to me, if you're asking the, the first thing you look for is if that wedge doesn't have a shaft that's pretty close to what's in your irons, walk by. Leave it alone. Do not think that you can make that wedge work. Right. Yeah, there, and there's always a lot of variables, too, and, and I know you touched on a little bit of that. Um, something I want you to, to explain a little bit, I, I found it very interesting because, again, most people don't uh, probably would never even have thought of this. You know, as we all know, there's, there's uh, several um, um, uh, grooves on, uh, on the, the uh, uh, face of the wedge, and you raised uh, some interesting thoughts last time, and you mentioned about how um, the difference between sort of our average high handicap golfer, where on that club face, at what grooves are being utilized with those wedges, um, as opposed to a tour pro. Can you explain that again and why, uh, wh- what the difference is? Where are they hitting it on the, on, the, on the wedge, on the face, and what grooves predominantly are most tour pro- pros hitting it, uh, as opposed to, say, some of our higher handicappers, and how that makes a difference? Well, I think that's that's probably the biggest uh, challenge for you know recreational golfers from low single digit to to mid double digit to high double digit. You know, golf, the tour players are magicians with their wedges. You have to understand that these guys mm-hmm. are great wedge players not because of their wedges. They're great wedge players right. because every day they go out and hit hundreds and hundreds of wedge shots. So. You know, they hit more wedge shots in average day than your typical recreational golfer might hit in a year. So, you know, they're right. honing these skills through incessant practice, and they've learned that with the wedges they play, the tour, the tour design wedges, it will lump almost all wedges into that category, you know, whether they're the Tide of Smoky, the Cleveland, the Callaway, the TaylorMade, these clubs are all pretty much the same. If you strip away the graphics, you look at them, they're all pretty much the same. The weight is in the bottom. And the tour players have learned you have to make contact down in that second, third, fourth groove in order to get that club to perform like it's supposed to. And But I've looked at hundreds, if not thousands, of wedges from recreational golfers, and the wear pattern is three to four grooves higher. It's the size of a silver dollar, not a penny. And, you know, we're looking right. for forgiveness. And, and your listeners... You know, 95% of you are playing some kind of a game improvement iron. You're playing two or three hybrids in your bag, 
and you're trying to game the same wedges the tour players are gaming, and, and that just doesn't work. These wedges are very finicky about how they perform, and that's, you know, again, a shameless self-plug, but when I approach the design of the Edison wedges, you know, in the evolution of the wedges I've designed for 30 years, I said, let's design the wedge around the impact pattern that I've seen on these hundreds and thousands of wedges that is the size of a silver dollar. It's centered up around the fifth or sixth groove. Let's just build a wedge to perform with that pattern. Um, and, and that's really the difference between Edison and all the other wedges. I'm not designing for tour players. I'm designing from the, the observation of hundreds or thousands of wedges that I've looked at over the years of how even good amateur players, three, four, five handicapped golfers, are still hitting the ball a little higher in the face than the tour player does. And, you know, again, it's, I think it's easier, and I think you'd probably agree, to design, as what you're doing, a product that's going to meet, meet the needs of the average golfer than trying to force them to become a tour player in the sense that, in other words, the tour players are, again, spending you know hours upon hours every single day crafting. So they're able to make those fine-tuned adjustments. But somebody that's maybe a weekend warrior that plays once a week, uh, maybe even twice a week, they don't have that. So trying to teach them to strike the ball like a tour player uh, and so forth is not going to work in most cases. You might get a few that might be able to get the grasp of it, but essentially what they need to do is have the right equipment in their hand. Um, and obviously you have to have some technique as well, but primarily what you're really focusing on here is let's get them fitted with the right equipment as opposed to try to retrain them uh, to the level of a tour player, which is you know next to impossible for the majority of people. Is that a fair and accurate statement, do you think? I think it's a pretty accurate statement. And, you know, when you think about the the recreational golfer that's, you know, getting his round of golf in or her round of golf in on Saturday or Sunday or maybe playing two or three days a week, your skills are so far from a tour player. And that's why you're playing some cavity back irons. That's why you, you put hybrids in the bag instead of trying to carry a two, three, or four iron. It's why you're playing this big 460cc driver. You're looking for golf clubs that will let you have more fun that, you know, you're making reasonably solid contact, but you're not making perfect contact, but you still, you know, hey, I hit that seven iron a little out on the toe, but it still got on the front of the green, or I hit that, you know, that nine iron a little high in the face, but it still got on the green. Well, why do we not demand that same forgiveness from wedges? And, you know, a, a golf club is a simple device in, in most respects, and there's a lot of rocket science in our industry now but the golf ball doesn't know who's on the other end of the handle of that golf club. It doesn't know if it's a 16-year-old teenage girl or if it's a 65-year-old guy or if it's a 30-year-old guy that's big and strong. All that golf ball can react to is the dynamics of the golf club and the dynamics of impact. And, you know, very simply, I just I have a different master, if you will, in the design of my wedges. My master is the 5 to 20 handicap golfer who's playing this game for fun. And mm-hmm. it's more fun when the ball ends up closer to the hole. Uh, and that's what drives me every day. <laughs> right. And, and and that's what makes it exciting. And and again, you know, as we, we talked about the last time, you know, it, the purpose of, of really this discussion, in addition to obviously 
um, you know, exposing Edison Golf, uh, you know, to more folks and, and giving. We're, we're going to talk about some of the things a little bit later um, that you have put in place, that Edison has put in place uh, to help customize and, and make that a much uh, easier and, and smoother transition uh, to getting the, the right equipment in their hand. Um, but, you know, I'm not here to, you know, certainly, uh, and I know you're not, to, to criticize anything else in the market. But, again, you know, they're catering to really in their design um, for, um, you know, a higher level player. You know, they're, they're basically building their products for the tour. And, you know, the rest of us are just sort of, you know, I guess lucky enough to, to pick one up. But it's really what it's being designed around. And you wanted to, as you pointed out a few moments ago, you really took a different approach because the percentage of people that are ever going to make it on tour is very small. Um, whereas, conversely, the everyday folks, it's a much bigger percentage. So you're really designing the needs for recreational golfers, as you said, and not the tour professionals, uh, which typically is done in this industry. Um, and you've as you pointed out, you had the opportunity to watch um, and observe the average golfer hit their wedges and, and get a lot of feedback and, and data. In addition to the equipment, what are some of the other factors that you've noticed through the data that you're receiving that the typical average golfer is doing wrong? Well, you know, I write a blog every week and I try to share insights and instruction and uh, the article I just penned in the last couple of days that will go up in the next couple of days is, you know, how to guarantee you won't get better at golf. <laughs> and, you know, I'm always <laughs> amazed that, that there's there's two parts of, of golf that require zero athletic ability, and that is learning how to hold the club properly and learning how to set up and, and posture yourself for a golf shot properly with the right alignment, the right ball position. Neither of these things take any athletic ability at all. And, and what frustrates me is to watch golfers, you know, who are holding the club. I had a friend of mine one time way back in my career. He said, that guy holds the golf club like a ham sandwich. <laughs> and uh, always, <laughs> that always sticks with me when I think about But, you know, the, the golf grip is not a personal thing, except in a very narrow parameter. And, you know, we have the overlap grip. You know, when Tiger Woods came about, the interlock grip, came into, into much more vogue. Uh, prior to that, Jack Nicklaus and Tom Kite were about the only two guys on tour that used the interlock grip because both of them have very, very small hands. And Tiger right. made the interlock grip more common. I think the interlock grip tends to move the club into your palms too much. But whether you overlap right. or interlock or use a 10-finger grip, which I do not like the term baseball grip, you do not hold a golf club like a baseball bat. But the 10-finger grip, right. I think, is good for, for seniors and ladies who have, you know, juniors who have lesser hand strength. But there's a proper way to hold a golf club, and it's not individual. And the, by the same token, if you go watch PGA Tour golf, you go watch LPGA golf, if you look at these elite players, they look identical other than their height. You know, Nelly Corda is six feet tall and – and, you know, the next LPGA player over here may be 5'4". But if you look at the posture and ball position and setup, all the top-notch golfers look exactly alike. They may have little movement differences in their swing, but if you, you know, you can't tell the difference from one to the other in the way they set up to the golf ball for the most part. These are not things that you can individualize. And I, I closed the article, and it'll be published the next couple of days. I said, Frank Sinatra made a fortune singing my way 
but nobody ever has been successful playing golf my way. <laughs> you know, it's right. the way. Right. If you want to really, if you want to really be good at this game, you need to learn how to hold the club properly because that that allows the body and the swing to move like it's supposed to. And you need to learn how to set up properly to the golf ball. And if you get the right hold on the club in the right starting position, making a sound golf swing becomes much easier. But if you're holding the club improperly, if you're standing and setting up to the ball in a in a wild, you know, non-conventional, non-fundamental way, your body cannot move the way it. It's kind of like you can't drive a race car from the passenger seat. You know, you have to be right. behind the wheel to drive the car, and, and you say, well, I prefer to drive from the passenger seat. Well, you're going to kill yourself. You know, I'm sorry. It's not personal. <laughs> you need to get behind the wheel of the car so your feet can get on the accelerator and the brake. And so, um, you know, but I think golfers, it, it, a lot of golfers out there trying to figure it out on their own. And uh, I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and and he said, uh he was talking about his, well, it's not brain surgery. And I said, no, brain surgery must be a lot easier because there are more brain surgeons in the United in the world than there are people making a living playing golf. <laughs> so, you right. know, maybe it is harder than brain <laughs> surgery, <laughs> this game that we've all tackled. Well, you know, and, and it is, uh, you know, it, it, even the best players, you know, you mentioned Tiger and Jack. Um, have all said that nobody ever really masters this game. I mean, you know, Tiger people were, were uh, as with Jack in his day, were just dumbfounded at the abilities and, and, and the shots that these guys were hitting and, and the level of play. Um, but even they did not master. They certainly played better than, you know, many other of their, of their competitors in, in many ways and obviously were smarter. It wasn't just that they were physically hitting the ball um, because they weren't hitting it better than everybody else on tour. As you said, it, there are many great players out there. But they knew how to play the game at such a high level and were able to dial in on the things that were that they felt were important, and that's why they were so successful. I mean, otherwise, you know, if it was as simple as, as what some people, you know, have tried to make it, um, everybody would be winning all the time. So, um, but you're right, a good foundation and a good grip um, is is a crucial starting point. I want to point something out because this is an area that a lot of people, but I want to read something first that a lot of people struggle understanding. And I'd like you to, if you wouldn't mind explaining. Um, so back in 92, uh, I mentioned this the last time you were on the show, but I want to re- reiterate this. You know, back in 92, you patented this, the Kohler Soul, which was the first and still only wedge sole to combine both a high and low bounce into each of your wedges to make them versatile from any kind of lie and obviously swing pad. So my question for you is, is the bounce being used incorrectly? If so, how? Well, there's so much dialogue, and I, and I've, you know, because I write the blog and I get feedback every week, and because I love talking to golfers about things, I think bouncing grinds are the are the most misunderstood, you know, elements of, of golf, and and I I like to work with people that are eager beginners, you know, that that want to learn how to do it right. Um, I really have no interest in working with people going, well, yeah, but I don't want to do it that way. Well, then keep doing it your way, and i got things to do. you know. But, but an eager beginner that really wants to learn, one of the things that I think is the easiest way to explain what the bounce is in the bottom of a golf club in a wedge, particularly, is think what I see beginners trying to help the ball in the air. 
You cannot hit up mm-hmm. on a golf ball because it's sitting on the ground. So you, it's physically impossible to hit up on the ball because the ball is sitting on the ground. So you have to hit down and through the ball. And one of the, the, the kind of explanations I've come up with that people seem to understand is this club in your hand is called a wedge. So what you want to do is you want to wedge the golf club between the ball and the earth. So the loft of the club is going to make the ball go up, and that downward angle of the sole, which is called bounce, is going to is going to prevent the club from digging in the ground. And one of the things that I that I like to show people is learn how to swing that that wedge with your left hand, your lead side, if you're a left if you're I don't like the term right-handed to left-handed golf, and I'll go into that. Why not? But the the game is played with your lead side. If you're a if you stand on the right side of the ball, the the swing is controlled with your right side. It's the lead side. If you stand on the left side of the ball facing the target, then the swing has got to be controlled with the lead side, which is your left side. It's not played with your hands. It's played with your with your lead side. But it, but my point is. I like to get people say, I want you to feel the bottom of that club kind of slapping the ground and get away from the golf ball. Golf ball is a huge intimidator to try to learn something. But, you know, just take that club back and forth and feel that bottom of that club slapping or bouncing off the ground. And that's when you learn how to engage the bounce of the golf club. The wedges have a downward angle in the sole called bounce. Forget nuanced grinds and all that. But it's designed so that that club will reject off the turf, whether it's a bunker. You know, wedges were kind of invented when Gene Sarazen back in the 30s uh, credited with inventing the sand wedge. But the whole idea is to literally bounce that club off of the turf just as it's making contact with the ball. I hope that's a decent explanation. That's the best I got. <laughs> well, <laughs> well said, Terry. Um, no, that 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 explains it very well. And, and I want to people because uh, again, this also is is something that you have to consider um, when you're making a club selection. Not just when you're out in the golf course, but if you're getting ready to purchase um, a wedge, those are factors that you need to understand. It's not just how it looks and and uh, who who's made it and so forth. That you need to understand. You know, is the club that you're using um, are you able to utilize the bounce correctly and because there are so many different versions out there and, and different options, you have to make sure that you're fitted properly. And we're going to talk a little bit about that when you uh, explain uh, the experience that, uh, that uh, a listener would have uh, going through Edison's process. Um, but first, what I want to do is for you to explain, what first off, what goes into the design of a wedge? Obviously, I'm talking about Edison wedge. And what are some common factors that you consider personally as a, that are important as a club designer? What are you looking for? When you're designing that wedge, um, you're obviously gathering information uh, through through the uh, customization process, um, or you know if you're seeing them face to face and and you're watching them and you're looking at some of the things, having a discussion. So there's a lot to go in. There's a lot of factors to consider. What are some of the personal factors that you look at, and what specifically goes into designing a wedge? So I've been designing wedges for 30 years, and so each wedge that I've done has been a a reflection of a learning process from the wedge before it, if that makes sense. So, you know, we we see the evolution in the the golf equipment, and I think back 
you know, I'm 71 years old. When I took up golf in the 50s as a little kid and in the, through the 60s and even in the 70s, you know, woods were made of wood and irons were, were blades, basically. And, you know, we had bullseyes and 8802 putters and some rake hooks in there, mallets. But, um, you know, the evolution of golf equipment has been dynamic. But when, when I, one of the things I think about is if I'm standing in the fairway 55 yards from the hole, I've got the same goal in mind that, you know, a tour player has, that Jack Nicklaus had in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that Ben Hogan had in the 40s and 50s, that Bobby Jones had in the 30s, 20s. The objective is to loft the ball in the air, fly it through the flag, and make it stop. And the equipment... You know, if the objective hasn't changed, what we've done with equipment is try to make that easier to do. Um, and, of course, I think the biggest evolution in golf clubs is in the driver category. Um, obviously, this rocket science and drivers, um, and there's so many good ones on the market. Fairway Woods have followed along with that. The advent of the hybrids was a godsend to, to people who, you know, I mean, two, three, four, five irons, clubs under... 25, 26 degrees of loft are hard to hit. Um, but mm-hmm. I think the, the modern technologies in golf clubs have harmed us at the scoring end of the set because we're, we're applying six iron technologies to our nine irons and, and P clubs, as I call them, and even into the approach clubs. And they're not really wedges anymore. They're six irons with 50 degrees of loft. And that what people don't stop to think about, if you go for an iron fitting, I hope I'm not rambling. If you go for an iron fitting, no, no. you're going to hit six, you're going to hit six irons in a hitting bay on the launch monitor. In today's world, that's a 27 to 29 degree golf club. And then they're going to say, here, we're going to build your set of irons off that. They're going to try to sell you all the way out to your approach wedge, which is a 50 degree golf club. Okay. So your approach wedge is further from your six iron than your driver is in loft mm-hmm. and nobody right. ever said i love my six iron can you make me a driver like this no that that, that i mean your your six iron <laughs> your driver is maybe 15 16 18 degrees aloft but your six iron to your approach wedge is 20 or 22 degrees aloft and so when i approach right. the design of a golf club i approach it as and i've i didn't got into a big com, uh, kind of an interview with matt saturnus at plugged in golf about what is a wedge? Well, you know, how do you define a wedge? Is it about the loft? Is it about the sole design? You know, what is it? And I, I don't really like the nomenclature wedge anymore. It's I'm trying to design you a club at 45 to 47 degrees, 49 to 50 degrees, 52 or 3 degrees, 55, 57, 59 or 60. I'm trying to design you golf clubs that are going to do what is supposed to happen when you have a club of that loft in your hand. And I want a high mm-hmm. spin rate. I want a penetrating trajectory. I want a sole that will reject out of the turf properly. And so what I'm looking at is it's just a golf club. You can call it an iron. You can call it a hybrid. You can call it a wedge. You can call it anything you want. But if you're standing in the fairway with a 49-degree golf club in your hand for a 110-yard shot or an 85-yard shot or 140 or whatever your strength profile is, you have a set of expectations of what that ball needs to do off of that golf club. So I'm not bound by what wedges, quote, are supposed to look like. I'm not bound by what a tour player doesn't want me to change in his golf club. And 
you know, when I, we were doing a member guest, we were doing a little pitching contest at our local member guest contest last weekend at our member guest tournament. And I had a, a, a 50-quart cooler sitting out at 15 yards, and the deal was to hit the ball in the cooler, and you qualify for the shootout. And I watched so many people, you know, just not having a clue of how they want to hit a 15-yard wedge shot. And, you know, from 15 yards, I need to loft the ball in the air with a controllable trajectory, and I need to make it stop reasonably close to where it lands. Um, and so when I approach wedge design, I'm kind of rambling, but back to your question, I'm looking at what do I need this 54-degree golf club to do to the golf ball in the, in the frame of, of shots that it will likely be used for? And so I put a lot more mass high in the golf club. The club's got loft. It's going in the air, and I want to give you forgiveness. If you hit it a little on the toe, you hit it a little high in the face, you hit it a little low in the face, I want to give you, if you're trying to hit it 22 yards, I want to give you, you know, 19 to 25 yards over as big an area of that face as I possibly can. Does that make sense? Yep, makes perfect sense. And, and, and that's so, the point. So I don't, I don't know, follow other design principles on wedges because I don't have a tour player that's telling me this launch is too hot, you know, or it launches right. too lowered. I don't, I don't care about that tour player. Bob Bokey, Roger Cleveland are, are brilliant. I mean, those guys have massive teams to take care of their tour players, and that's great. I've worked with tour players. I, that's just not where I am now. My master is the 8 to 20 handicapper trying to play golf one or two days a week and get the most out of his afternoon or his morning or her morning. Well, and that's exactly, you know, the point I made earlier is, you know, you really approach this from sort of the, the opposite side of the coin. You know, a lot of the manufacturers with, with everything is sort of focusing, and, and, and I understand why, and, and you know, it, it, it's admirable, obviously, but the truth of the matter is the average golfer continues to struggle. And one of the reasons is because the equipment's not really, for the most part, I'm not referring to yours, but for the most part, is not really designed for them. And so they're struggling to, to sort of make ends meet, if you will, out in the golf course because the equipment they're using is not really designed and you can be fitted and, and all of that. But again, you know, they're more often than not, they're playing with a driver that the loft is, is, is not high enough. And, uh, you know, they're struggling to make good solid contact and yeah, you have 460 CC, so you can hit it anywhere and you know, there is some forgiveness, but again, they're still struggling. The handicaps, I mean, the stats don't lie. Handicaps have not budged much in the last 20 to 30 years for the average golfer. Um, and the reasons are is because the equipment is not being designed. So really, you know, in a nutshell, what you're trying to do uh, with, with uh, Edison and the wedges that you're, you're developing is you're trying to give them an opportunity to go out and enjoy, have fun with the game, and, you know, if they happen to have a little bit of a mishit, uh, mishit excuse me, there's forgiveness built into the design of the club um, and not just into the, the marketing pitch. And, and that's what really people are looking for is they want to go out and have fun. I mean, and if they're having fun, they're going to be more inclined to work on their game and spend time. If they're not having fun, then the clubs are just collecting dust in the garage. And I think that pretty much sums up how a lot of the average golfers feel. And I know you heard that, like you said, thousands upon thousands of times. Um, so give us some of the feedback that you hear from golfers that you've worked with, from the average golfers that have been, you know, uh, fitted properly with, with the Edison wedge and um, what has been some of the biggest gains that they're seeing? What has been some of the feedback? How has it helped their game? 
But what we hear the most is, um, and, and we sell everything with a 100% risk-free trial. I, you know, if, if you have one of my wedges and you don't like it, I'd rather you send it back to me for a refund than to tell your friends you have an Edison wedge you don't like. Um, we get about three out of 100 back, and two of those people mm-hmm. thought we were in the miracles business. So we're not in the miracles business. And I will tell you that the, the, the closer you get to the hole, the harder the game gets it in today's golf. And you're talking about golfers not getting better. I saw a a piece of information the other day that was what the stiff meter readings were at top courses around the country in 1977. And the fastest greens in the country were at Oakmont, which was an 8.1 stimp. The average person today is going to go on to a decent municipal golf course, and if they're 8.1, he's going to complain about slow greens. And, I mean, the golf courses have gotten harder around the greens. The green complexes, the bunkers, the shaved collars, the speed and firmness of the greens. The game is harder, I think, than it ever has been. And I think this is a bad thing, but everybody wants to outdo the other. They want their greens to roll 12 and 13 on the step, and the green wasn't designed for that. And so people are on the green too long. They can't chip it close to the hole. and, And the other thing, I think, and we were... I'm on the golf committee at our club and, and the greens committee as well. And I brought up in a conversation the other day, I was talking to one of my friends at the club and, and Jim is 83 and he's, he hits it pretty good, but you know, he's just not that long. And I said, he said, you know, my handicap's all the way up to 21. And I said, Jim, you're playing a par 84 golf course. Your handicap is seven because right. <laughs> you've got, you've got two par sixes that you cannot get home with three shots You've got seven, eight, nine par fives that you cannot get home with a driver and a three wood. I said, you're playing, you know, move up. And he said, well, there aren't. A set of, I said, play it from wherever you want to play in the fairway. But if I play the men's regular tees and number one is a driver and a gap wedge, you're not supposed to be hitting a driver and a four into that hole. Move up, you know. And I think this yep. is a, a problem in our game is that, you know, courses are long. Everybody's focused on the tour guy and all that. But, you know, I, I read a statistic. I think it was the 2021 season. Of all the par four holes all season long, Dustin Johnson hit one approach shot with more than a seven iron in a season. Right. That's the way the game is being played at the highest level. It is being played with short irons. And so for the big, the big guns, if you're playing a golf course that you're hitting – you know, eight or ten approach shots with more than a seven iron, you're playing a harder golf course than the tour guy plays because he's yeah. driving one or two sharp par fours. He's hitting a five or a six iron to all the par fives on his second shot. He doesn't have a par five. And the game is not supposed to be driver three-wood wedge to a medium-length par four. And so I think this is one reason why golfers, quote, are not getting better because the courses are getting too dang hard. And – you know, yeah. the tour player can manage a short game and putting on a, you know, 11 or 12 stint green, but the rest of, of, of amateur golfers are not skilled enough to do that. That's dicey golf. And so I, that's kind of one of my beefs about the game being too hard today because of, right. you know, the type of golf courses being built. I mean, when I was a kid in the 50s, putting was the easiest part of game. Chipping was the second easiest part. Short arm play was the third easiest. Middle arm play was fourth. And hitting for some driver was the hardest part of the game. 
And the game is completely yep. reversed in today's world. Hitting driver is easy. Everybody can hit a driver. you got a big old 460cc head, the ball sitting up on the three-inch tee. That's the easiest part mm-hmm. of the game. But I watch so many golfers, and I admonish people all the time, I said, count the number of strokes you took today inside 35 yards. Because yep. it, it should not be three and four and five shots to get it in the hole. But everybody wants to go out to the – and I get into this kind of, you know, just kind of oddball stuff because I'm a contrarian. Why do we call them driving ranges? They should be called practice ranges. You know, driving right. range implies I go to the range and I hit a bunch of drivers, and, you know, what you really need to do is hit a bunch of 20-yard wedge shots, you know, <laughs> and it doesn't wear you out. And go hit 100 of them and learn how to hit those little shots. But, you know, I, well, and what I'm a, really amazed at is that so many golfers – they really don't – I don't think they care to get better. Uh, they want to just go play golf and have fun. So let's – I mean, they don't go to the range. They don't practice. They don't stretch every day. They don't get, you know, to even take – I mean, I watch guys at my club that I play golf with regularly. They get out of their car, put the clubs on the cart, they go to the first tee, and they take one practice swing, and then they go after it. Well, <laughs> you don't have – you're not giving yourself much of a chance to play good. <laughs> no, you're exactly right, Terry, and – and, you know, I've, I've said this as a teaching professional for years, you know, I mean, if you want to become better, a better player, and that doesn't mean you don't practice it, but don't focus all of your efforts on hitting it off the tee. I mean, you only have so many holes that you're going to tee up your driver. Uh, and the rest of it is really your short game. And even from, I'll even go further, even from 100 yards in, most average golfer struggles to get it close um, and up and down. And if you're losing strokes in your short game, but you're practicing the long game on the driving range or the practice area, um, and this was what uh, Clint and I um, on the Coach's Corner panel just before you came on, we're talking about was the short game, some ideas to, to really focus on. And, you know, a, a lot of people don't want to do it because the truth of the matter is, and I, I know we're kind of getting off topic here a little bit, but I just want to add this last bit and then we'll we'll move on. But um, is through very effective marketing, it's this sort of grip it and rip it mentality, and people have sort of twisted their game around to, okay, let's see how far I can hit it because that's going to help me score better, and really it's the opposite. If you can hit it 150 to 200 yards reasonably straight, you can virtually play most golf courses um, as far as distance-wise. Where you run into the problem, as you pointed out, the greens are much faster, um, and it looks like, sorry, I apologize, I'm going to stop midstream. It looks like I lost Terry here um, temporarily, so I'll wait for him to, to come back. Um, but um, anyways, I'll just sort of finish my thought as I wait for him to, to come back in. But, um, you know, this is unfortunately for you listeners out there, this has become an area that many, many golfers uh, focus on is they're focusing on the long game and not their short game, and it needs to be the opposite. But uh, when Terry comes back on uh, here, it looks up. There he is. Sorry about that. Welcome back, Terry. <laughs> yeah, I don't the know third what time, I guess. No, I don't know either. It, uh, sometimes that happens. You get dropped. But uh, I, I, I finished the thought while you were off, um, so I don't need to, to repeat it. It was really more for the audience. Um, but I, I agree with you. The, the, course, the courses need to, to change in, in order to be able to make it a more pleasurable experience. The one thing I want to sort of wrap us up with is I, I mentioned earlier 
is, you know, you have put together really um, what you call wedge fit at Edison, and this gives them, talk about a little bit about the process. So what happens here? If somebody contacts you and uh, or contacts Edison and says, okay, you know, I'm interested in the wedges, what's the process? What, what do you recommend I do to make sure I'm getting fitted with the proper wedges? So walk me through a little bit of the I know we can't do everything, but walk me through a little bit of the process. What happens? Well, what wedge fit is, is a, it's been an evolving tool that I created almost 20 years ago, and I've, I've reviewed over 75,000 golfer wedge fit profiles. And what wedge fit is designed to do is to walk you through a Q&A process so that we can learn about what's in, what's, what's in your bag in the way of irons. You know, iron lofts have been changing constantly, so, you know, wedge gapping changes constantly. You know, the old... 52, 56, 60, which was kind of the standard wedge makeup 35 years ago, was when P-clubs, as I call them, were 48 degrees. Well, now I'm seeing right. P-clubs at 42, 44, 43 degrees. It makes you need to rethink your entire gapping at the short end of your set. Um, and so what Wedge Fit is designed to do is to take you through a, a Q&A session so we can learn what's in your bag, you know, what are your trajectories like? What are your misses like? What are your, you know, what are your best shots like? You know, where's the strengths and the weaknesses of your scoring game? So, and, and what kind of shafts are in your iron? So we can recommend to you, whether it's Edison or somebody else, but, you know, here's the gapping that's probably going to work for you. Here's the shafts you ought to have in your wedges. Here's the specifications for, you know, line and length and this kind of thing. I'm, my biggest thing is your wedges have to blend seamlessly, as I call it, to your irons. If you have a a 42-degree P-club and you're still playing a 52, 56, 60, you got a 10-degree gap in there that you don't have any golf clubs. And with iron technologies right. making these clubs go further and further, you know, it doesn't matter what's in your hand. Do you have a 110-yard shot? Do you have a 90-yard shot? Do you have a 130-yard shot? And, you know, I mean, as I get older, that 130-yard shot, you know, may be moving to an 8-iron from a 9-iron, but that's okay. Right. But I still got to have a 130-yard shot in my bag because I'm going to be there. And I see so many golfers that they they have upgraded their irons, so now their, their P-club is a 135-yard club, but their gap wedge is still a 105-yard club. So they have a massive mm-hmm. gap right in prime money range, I call it, I mean, when you're inside, you know, when you're inside 125, 130, you know, 110, depending on your strength profile, that's when it's time to score. Um, and so right. you've got to have the right wedges in your bag to give you 10 to 12 degree, 13 degree gapping so that you can be precise when you're in that prime scoring range. And, you know, it, nobody cares if you hit a 9-iron or a 7-iron from 130. Did it go close to the hole? Because that's all that really counts. Nobody's counting, oh, well, you hit a seven iron three feet from the hole, so you know that's better than hitting a nine iron three feet from the hole. No, it's not. It's three feet from the hole. Did you make that putt? You know, so it's right. all about scoring and and getting your set built for your strength profile, and that was, is what Wedge Fit is designed to take you through. And then our team will will interact with you after you take Wedge Fit. We we'd love to talk to people. I mean, we. We physically talk to almost 40% of our customers. The others, you know, will end up buying online, and they feel like they know what they want. But we love talking to our customers because we can help guide them to what's right. 
Yeah, and that's important because a lot of people don't know. As you pointed out, a lot of people don't know or they get that gap because, as you said, they've upgraded the, the rest of their irons and then they've sort of neglected, um, you know, the, the, you know, that end, the short end, if you will, uh, of, of their, their clubs. And now they've got a 10-yard gap. And, you know, regardless of what yeah. age you are, when you start getting that big of a gap um, in your irons, um, you know, then you're, it, it's a lot of guesswork when you get out in the golf course. You know, like you said, you get faced with a 130-yard shot and you don't have the right club in the bag. Um, and so then you start making, uh, you know, physical adjustments. You start altering your swing or you start making uh, adjustments. And, you know, Nicholas famously said in, in Golf My Way, and I mentioned this earlier tonight in the show with, uh, with Clint, and, you know, he, he famously said that, you know, the only thing I do uh, when I'm out playing is I change the club. I don't change my golf swing. Now, obviously, for the shorter uh, shots, it's obviously an abbreviated swing. But he said, when I'm whether I'm swinging my driver or whether I'm swinging my you know my seven iron or what have you, it's the same golf swing. So I have to make sure I have the right club in my hand. And if you've got huge gaps throughout your set, especially with your wedges, then you have difficult time scoring. And that's really what it's about. And when you add in the factor, as you pointed out earlier with the golf courses being more challenging and the, and the, you know, especially the greens and, and around the greens, um, that becomes even more critical because you need to get closer to that hole to ensure likelihood of success. Because if you're 30 feet away and you've got a slippery slope and you're, you know, hitting 12 on the stint meter, um, you've got some tricky putts ahead of you. And that's where a lot of people lose their, their, their strokes is in that end. So we get them hooked up with wedge fit on, on uh, edisonwedges.com. They go through the process. There's obviously some communication that goes back. And really, you're doing a much deeper dive um, uh, when you're fitting them with these wedges. And I like the fact that you have a money-back uh, uh, risk-free guarantee. So if somebody's not 100% happy, they have the option to, to send it back. Um, and I went through the process after our last uh, show and uh, obviously got uh, a set of wedges sent out. And i got to say, uh, quite honestly, I, I, I love them. And uh, you guys did a great job. You hit the numbers right on, on where they needed to be for me. And uh, so it's well worth the process. So um, any final thoughts on that before, uh, before we wrap up? You know, we're, we're a small company. We're challenging conventional wisdom. Uh, our wedges don't look like anybody else's wedges because I didn't want them to work like everybody else's wedges. And one of the things that I remind people of is every great development in golf equipment has always required us to accept a different look. I mean, the pink, the monstrosity compared to the beautiful bullseyes and 8802s, you know, were a very different look than the long irons we had played. You know, the big Bertha, the great big Bertha, the big drivers, you know, the cavity back irons didn't look like those gorgeous blades that were hard to hit. And in our industry and in golf as a team, when, when we make a, a, quantum elements it's going to come in a different looking package that's just you know the golf ball has always looked pretty much from the outside even though it's very different on the inside but in the golf club world different performance is going to come in a different package. and we in the industry there's a lot of bright people in here just that every day trying to figure out how to make a seven iron work better how to make a driver work better how to make a three wood work better how to make a putter work better but it's going to require you to accept it better is going to look different. Let's just look at yeah. that. It's going to look different than what you used to see, you know. 
And, you know, you can say, well, I think a three iron is prettier than the three hybrid. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't work near as good. <laughs> so, right. Know, uh, better always looks. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And just to let the folks know, of course, um, your uh, mantra is really is, is the Edison wedges are custom built to order for each customer. Uh, you uh, put them together and ship them uh, from your operations center in Rockport, Texas. So uh, great facility there. And um, if you're interested in learning more, uh, again, visit edisonwedges.com as the website. And if you're in the market and you think you need to update those wedges uh, in your bag, uh, go through WedgeFit. It's well worth it, and you're going to learn a lot as well, and you're going to get a better understanding. And, and a lot of people, be surprised, don't know their game, and this is going to help them understand it a little bit better. It's going to help you guys understand their game, and you're going to be able to put uh, some uh, great wedges together for them um, so that when they get out there in the golf course, they're going to have a much better time and a lot more fun, and that's really what this game is all about. But, uh, Terry, I want to thank you for coming back, and I really enjoy our, our conversations. I, I loved having you on the first time, and I was excited to have you back this time and and there's so many things so many different areas that we could cover so i'm gonna have to uh maybe have you come back uh again in the new year and we'll talk some more but um um you do a fantastic job the products the wedges are just uh really fantastic top notch and you do a great uh, a great job and your team does as well so kudos to all of them as well as yourself and um thank you very much for, for joining me and my audience this evening on golf talk live it's been a pleasure well, hey, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure, and and I'd love to come back on. We can talk about short game techniques, spring techniques. I've made a study of this part of the game for 40 years, and uh, you know, I'll share what I know with people because uh, you know, there's nothing better at golf. I couldn't agree more, Terry. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your week and great weekend. And as we get ready to head into a new month, October. Uh, fall season, still lots of great golf to be played. So, again, go to edisonwedges.com is the website and uh, go through the wedge fit process, and I guarantee you won't be disappointed. But, Terry, again, thank you very much, and have a great uh, rest of your evening and a great weekend. Thank you, and the same back to you. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, that was uh, Terry Kohler, the Chairman and Director of Innovation at Edison Golf, and, uh, again, based out of uh, Rockport, Texas uh, is where they – uh, assemble the clubs and ship them out through their operations center. And uh, EdisonWedges.com uh, is their website. Uh, definitely go and check it out. A lot of great information there. And as Terry mentioned, he uh, puts together a blog as well with some useful information. So definitely want to check it out. Um, again, special thanks to uh, my good friend and buddy Clint Wright for joining me earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. Always a lot of fun, Clint. I uh, always have some great discussions with you. And uh, uh, glad uh, you're able to uh, to join me uh, on on these Thursday evening coaches corner panels every month. So um, that and also again a special thanks to tonight's uh, guest Terry Kohler from uh, Edison Golf. On that note, God bless everybody. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.